Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Podcast on Radio Free Nashville, 107.1 and 103.7 and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. They have gone too far. They have gone way too far in abusing their power over this body. For years, they've had all kinds of offenses by Republican members that went completely unpunished and unnoticed. Uh, And now, just for speaking out, They're actually going to expel members from their seats, and that is is way too far. It is proving that they have too much power, are abusing their power, and that this whole one-party system has to end. That was Anna Grabowski speaking to me from the gallery overlooking the Tennessee state legislature. And what that means is that when Americans, you know, are not dying in such high numbers in our wars... So, for example, in Operation Inherent Resolve, this air war in Iraq and Syria, more Americans died from suicide than from hostile death. So when you don't have as many Americans dying, which do not get me wrong, it's a very good thing that fewer American service members are losing lives. But when you don't have that, what you often also don't have is the kind of accountability that is driven by those losses. And I don't just mean journalists being on the ground and embedding and being there. But I mean, the kind of accountability that comes from public demands about wars, um, about congressional attention, about a focus on ending them or thinking through the costs of conflict, because those are often restraining factors. They're political costs to wars that are then thus diminished significantly. It doesn't mean that there are no longer any costs. And that was Osmet Khan, investigative journalist, and today we have a two-part show. First stop is local to Nashville to discuss the racist debacle that is called the Tennessee State Legislature. And then, to follow up with our discussion of drones, we will hear part of the presentation from Osmet Khan, investigative journalist who has been researching and documenting the actual civilian damages caused by U.S. airstrikes from drones and planes. But first, my name is Jim Walgamuth, and I'm here with fellow Vietnam veteran Harvey Bennett. We're members of Veterans for Peace. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Just go to veteransforpeace.org. This radio show and podcast is on stations across the country thanks to the Pacifica Radio Network. We're also on SoundCloud, Anchor Podcasts, Spotify, and your phone podcast app. Just search... Veterans for Peace. The Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by you, the listener, because it is you that keeps Radio Free Nashville going. And as a result, this radio show is then picked up by the Pacifica Radio Network so that we are actually heard across the country. So if you think this is important, just go to RadioFreeNashville.org and click on Donate and keep Harvey and I on the air in every time zone in the U.S. Okay, while the mainstream media, YouTube, Twitter, and other platforms are censoring voices of activism, not to mention a Tennessee state legislature, and dissent, we will continue to share those voices who stand up against the establishment, who stand up against the military, industrial, congressional, media, corporate complex, who stand up against the Tennessee state legislature, who stand up for us the global us. As you know, I live in the Nashville area. After all, this is Radio Free Nashville. And two weeks ago, 
we were devastated by the mass shooting at Covenant Elementary School, which killed three nine-year-olds and three adult staff members. Students, moms, grandparents marched to the capital of Tennessee, meaning Nashville, and entered the rotunda and the gallery to demand action from the state legislature, which so far has made Tennessee one of the easiest places to get a gun and one of the highest places for gun violence. The protest was loud, boisterous, but peaceful. And it included three of the legislators that were down in the so-called well. Well, like any responsible legislature would do, the Tennessee legislature acted. They acted to expel those three legislators, Justin Jones of Nashville, who has been on the show if you've followed us for years, uh, and you can find those shows by just going to SoundCloud, searching Veterans for Peace, and then Justin Jones. The other two legislators were Justin Pearson of Memphis and Gloria Johnson of Knoxville. The debate and the vote to expel was last Thursday. My granddaughter and I went to the Capitol, worked our way through the gathering, and made it to the gallery where I found people from all over the state. And I got a chance to talk to a couple. So here is Regina Clark from Memphis. We're here. We came up from Memphis to support Justin Pearson. Good. Yes, good, we good. We drove buses up here. You drove buses up here. Yes. Very good. Yes, we did. And Justin Pearson is one of the three yes, that is going to be expelled. And we got Regina Clark here. Yes. So, and, and, that's what they're trying to do. and so uh, the Tennessee legislature wants to expel. Wants to expel Justin. Well, both Justin's and Gloria for doing exactly what they were elected to do. Justin was a Justin Pearson was elected because he gave voice when they kept trying to silence. We know about the the pipeline they tried to send through and think nobody was going to notice it. They said it was the path of least resistance, and Justin made noise, and that's how we got Al Gore and the Poor People's Campaign, Bishop Barber in town. Now they're trying to do it again. They want to they want to make sure that people in District 86 don't have any representation. Yep. And I mean, that's, that's, that has to stop. Now, does anybody take notice to the fact that the uh, primarily the white male Republicans are trying to expel two black guys and a woman? Yes, and, and the woman they're trying to expel is one who is known for standing up for what's right. Okay, all right, very good, very good. Well, let her bet you get back to your business. And so thanks for coming all the way from Memphis. It's good okay. to see you. It's good to see you. Then here is... Anna Grabowski and her friend Patricia. I'm here because they have gone too far. They have gone way too far in abusing their power over this body. Um, for years, they've had all kinds of offenses by Republican members that went completely unpunished and unnoticed. Uh, and now, just for speaking out, they're actually going to expel members from their seats, and that is uh, that is way too far. It is proving that they have too much power, are abusing their power, and that this whole one-party system has to end. Okay. I've asked one or two people, have you noticed that the white guys in the General Assembly are expelling two black men and a woman? What? No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They wouldn't, would they? Yes, they yeah. are. That's I, also, what they're I also noticed that for years, 
they have been going after Gloria, who is a, a, an outspoken woman, because you know you're not supposed to be. And then they've been going after Justin Jones for years. I mean, there's video evidence of them being derisive and disrespectful and downright hateful to him. And mm -hmm. they really cannot, even though they have all the power in the state, they don't. They know they don't feel threatened power-wise. They just cannot stand to have somebody to, to speak back to them or stand up to them or to even call out what they're doing. And Justin has never been hateful to them. I've seen so many videos where he's civil and decent to them to their face, and then they come back to him hateful. Plantation mentality? Yeah, yeah. You know, and they're scared of him and Justin and other part of that because yeah. they're scary, you know. Yeah, you know, oh, I know. They're very, very scary. But the most peaceful people I know, Justin wouldn't hurt a flea, and then they act like they're dangerous. Now, me, I'm a redneck. I'm a different thing. Yeah. They bet, you know, I'm not going to say anything, but, you know, but they, they should, the people we should be afraid of are people like Lafferty that was on video three years ago uh, disrespecting and being hateful to Justin, and then the other day pushed him and took his phone. Now, they can argue and say, well, he wasn't pushed. People saw it. We saw it from the gallery. And it's for sure he took his phone because somebody else had to retrieve it. But what will happen to him? Yeah. Now, is there any, a number of people have noticed that they're willing to ban drag shows, but expand uh, people's ability to carry guns? Yeah. I mean, they kind of go together, don't they? Yeah. I mean, they kind of go together because... You know, it's the whole, like you said, kind of plantation mentality, a kind of fort fortress mentality. Y'all don't belong here, and we've got ways to make sure you stay out of here. And it creates more danger for people uh, that don't fit the exact mold that they want. Even clergy. we got clergy that were protesting, but they're not the right kind of clergy. Let them know about Justin Canoe's house getting oh, shot yeah, at, you, too. Like, the legislators, they want this increased gun possession in the hands of the right, and they want them doing the violence on the street towards trans people, LGBT, LGBT people, activists that speak up. One of the journalists that cover all the goings on at the house with the Tennessee hauler, Justin Canoe, his house was shot up with his family sleeping inside and his children inside. And that's the result of this hateful rhetoric and then increasing guns in people's hands, guns in people's hands. That's the solution for everything. And so that's what their followers use as the solution for everything, just to go shoot people up. Good grief. I didn't know, I didn't hear that Justin Canoe's house was shot up. Yeah, he posted it on Twitter. He wasn't here at the Capitol Monday and everybody was wondering what happened. And he posted on Twitter that his family was shot, or his house was shot up. While him and his family, his two children, were inside sleeping. Good Lord. And your name is? My name is Patricia. Okay, Patricia. Are you from Nashville? Um, I'm actually from East Tennessee. East Tennessee. Yeah. So you came the whole way to the Capitol to be at this rally because it's early and it's raining. Yeah. It's yeah. a mess. Yeah, we're really concerned about what's happening in our state. We're very, very concerned. Uh, and the representatives have even said this isn't a democracy. They don't care about the will of the people. They don't care that they're showing up. They don't care that they don't have the people behind them. They just know they have the power and they're going to force through whatever they want. Then and how, how come they keep getting elected? Uh, the gerrymandering. Um, up until, what, 2010, Democrats had control of the state. There was a very wide effort to gerrymander districts, so that way they, they're sure that they win. And so even, and, and people have, you know, gotten, I think, a little bit defeated and given up on the system, too, when they vote, and they vote, and nothing happens, and nothing changes. 
And But I think people are realizing they need to get involved. And I think this has been a big wake-up call for people that are realizing what's going on at the Capitol and there's some light being shed on it. Another reason they get elected is that the news doesn't tell the people what's actually happening. We need more people like you and like the Tennessee Holler. Because my neighbors in Meigs County, many of whom, most of whom, vote Republican, when I tell them, I told them about one of Justin Jones's bills, and everybody was for it. What did the Republicans here do? They killed it without a word. You know. Right. And when you talk about the issues, when people know what's going on, they're not going to, most people, now you got your fringe lunatics, but most people are reasonable and would see that what they're doing is wrong and un-American and that they wouldn't vote so just go in and automatically pull that R because, you know, their neighbors all do. They don't get the news. They get, uh, you know, a very quick blurb that doesn't tell them anything. And then, unfortunately, also, uh, a lot of the churches in the area are, you know, fanatically anti-Democrat. Right. So. Yeah. Well, very good. Very good. And anything else you want to share? And I just really encourage everyone to get active and stay active in whatever capacity you can. If you can't be here on the front lines, and you got some extra money, send it to people who are. If you bake stuff, like feed people who are in the movement, like work together in whatever ways you can, register voters, show up at the Capitol, show up at your county commission, show up at your city councils, and pay attention to your school boards to what's going on because they are. And they've got plans, and and the more we're there and we shine light on that, the more we can keep this evil from happening and actually make sure that the will of the people is represented. Okay, and your name again was Patricia. My name is Patricia, yeah. And Anna. And Anna. Thanks so much. So take note, the founder of the Tennessee Holler, Justin Canoe, had his house shot at while his family slept inside. Welcome to Tennessee. And let me give a shout out to the Tennessee Holler, which you can search for on Facebook. The word Tennessee and Holler, H-O-L-L-E-R. They do a great job keeping up with the insanity of our state government. Well, like I mentioned, my granddaughter and I went early and listened to the debate about legislation proposed by the Tennessee legislature called the Fortify Our Schools Act which included more police, more weapons, and possibly even handcuffs in schools. Representative Justin Jones and Representative John Ray Clemens questioned the seriousness and the extent of the bill. Justin even pointed out that the bill did not include any reference to guns. Of course, Justin was cut off as he tried to pursue his line of questions. So after listening to this, I asked my granddaughter, Olivia Burr, what she thought about this idea of fortifying our schools. Here she is, Olivia Burr, 10 years old. I'm talking to a young student now. Why are you here? I am here to tell them that I feel uncomfortable with police officers having firearms in our school. It makes me very uncomfortable while I'm eating lunch as well. I'm just minding my business eating lunch. And then a police officer walks in with a pistol. And I'm like, what? And then, so my brother has autism, right? 
that makes me even more uncomfortable for his safety because because um in the cafeteria they are kind of like swarming around his table so that makes me uncomfortable and my family uncomfortable so yeah that's my case okay uh, but police you need policemen to protect schools so where would the policemen be better off being instead of the cafeteria Probably the entrances. The entrances? The entrances. Okay. Would be so much better. All right. Very good. Very good. Well, thank you for that well thought out answer. You are welcome. Oh, let me ask you one more question. Um, you know that we're here on the day that they're going to try and expel three members of the General Assembly, including Justin Jones. Do you know Justin Jones? Yes. You do know Justin Jones. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so is that kind of why you're here at the gallery too? Yes. Okay, very good. Well, thank you. Thank you. So there were some wise words from a 10-year-old who clearly has a better grasp on reality than most of the legislators in the General Assembly. Later that day, in a totally partisan vote, the General Assembly in Tennessee, as you know, voted to expel the Justins, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, who are black but not Gloria, who is white. When questioned about the obvious difference, Gloria Johnson, here was her answer. It might have to do with the color of our skin. And then she went on. And the nation, keep watching. We are losing our democracy. We need to make sure that we stomp out this march to fascism. Absolute power corrupts absolutely, and we cannot forget that. Eyes on everything, folks. Now, I encourage you to go to YouTube and search Justin Jones, Justin Pearson, and Gloria Johnson to get a better understanding of their humanity and their concern for Tennessee and the difficulty that we face in Tennessee with the racism, misogyny, homophobia, and while we're at it, Islamophobia, xenophobia. Okay, since these discussions, the Nashville Metro City Council voted to reinstate Justin Jones on Monday, and the Memphis City Council was scheduled to vote to reinstate Justin Pearson yesterday, on Wednesday, as you're listening to this on Thursday. The key now is, will the leadership within the General Assembly, the same people that just voted to expel both of the Justins, will they reseat them? Will they allow them back in? And then what legal ramifications come from all of that? Or maybe not. I mean, it would be nice if they just did the right thing. Listen to the people. I know it's unusual for Tennessee, but listen to the people and allow them to come back. So, we will follow up on this national story, Tennessee story, with national implications. If the Republican Party can get away with this here, well, which state is next? And, if possible, my granddaughter and I will try and get down there to witness what goes on from here on in. Okay, so, on to our next topic. A group of 15 concerned citizens blockaded the gate at Creech Air Force Base at 7 a.m. on Wednesday, April 5th. 2023 to bring attention to the illegal drone assassinations conducted by the Air Force and the CIA and possibly other other governmental agencies at Creech. 
Lauren L. Briley from Medina, Ohio, a retired 70-year-old Lutheran pastor, and Silver Pondolofino, age 65, sorry, Mr. Pondolofino, from Staten Island, and a member of the, the Reverend Billy and the Church of Stop Shopping Choir were arrested for blocking the roadway. C.J. Preston, age 24, from Berkeley, California, was arrested for writing the word drones on a stop sign. So did it then read, stop drones. Currently, or at least then, they were being held at the Clark County Detention Center. Okay, so as you remember, our show from just two weeks ago, we had Toby Blomay, Colonel Ann Wright, and Ken Myers on to discuss the upcoming week-long protest against killer drones coming up at Holloman Air Force Base starting on April 15th. Harvey Kant found a clip that will help reinforce why U.S. drone program is such a disaster. So Harvey, tell us, who's on this clip? Azmat Khan is a uh, professor at Columbia and she has done a deep dive into drone warfare and airstrikes by the U.S. in the Middle East and the human toll of that. She has done the legwork, well, along with her team, to actually find out the truth from the people on the ground who are on the receiving end of these attacks because she has, through great effort, obtained the records of the various drone programs, all the attacks, how they described them, how they described casualties. And then she has gone to these actual sites of the attacks and documented the results with testimony by witnesses, by family members, survivors. And she has laid bare the uh, utter cover-up and lies of the U.S. program in terms of how they report these things. They reported that there was civilian casualties in one out of every 135 strikes. And on, based on her assessment on the ground in each of these strikes, and it goes for far beyond those 135, but she, their their data is one in every five strikes. So you're talking about roughly 30 times as much as what the U.S. is reporting. And she goes into graphic detail uh, of some of the most egregious examples of this and how the process of, of the the drone pilots and these you know young immature recruits they have who are looking at these images making determinations that essentially uh, condemn people to violent death based on these totally unvalidated assumptions about what they see with no real connection to reality. She has given us the the hard truth of this and and what we have we understand of course is that the horrendous toll that stakes on these drone operators and drone pilots reflect back on what they've done. Probably doesn't happen as often as it should, but tremendously damaging to these troops, but not to mention the deaths of these innocent people. 
and how that is just fertile ground for people being recruited to terrorist groups. I mean, I would if my family was blown up. Uh, I hope I would have the guts to do that if my family was blown up. But listens to the voices of these people who are ignored. You talk about ignoring, and these people are ignored and are not valued. Right. And where did you find this clip, Harvey? It's on that Feinberg uh, series from UMass Amherst. Okay. Uh, and I recommend Feinberg. I think they actually named it after Daniel Ellsbury, the series, out of respect for him. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to take a listen. You know, I'd love to tell you a little bit about, you know, how I came to do the work that I've been doing. And I think a good place to start you know, despite the fact that I'd been in Pakistan back in 2008 and 2009 as America's drone war there escalated and other different kinds of war reporting that I've done, I think where this story began for me was watching just these, you know, watching ISIS take territory across broad swaths of Iraq and Syria and watching as how, not just how quickly it spread, but how much difficulty we had encountering ISIS, just how powerful, you know, the air campaign actually was in retaking territory from ISIS. And you can see that that territory was retaken. And a major reason for that is, you know, what we would call Operation Inherent Resolve. And this was just extraordinarily impressive. If you were watching some of these videos that were on YouTube, you could see these airstrikes take place with extreme precision. You could watch aircraft essentially refueling other aircraft mid-air so they could carry out these long flights from the airbase in Qatar. And you saw these really impressive stats and this incredible information campaign to counter what had been the Islamic, you know, the so-called Islamic State's narrative about having successes on the ground. And so, you know, at the time, and these numbers are different today, but at the time that I was looking at this, I was seeing these sort of tens of thousands of airstrikes in Iraq and Syria, and, you know, more than 100,000 bombs being dropped in those countries, and claims of as many as 70,000 ISIS fighters being killed. And then on top of that, a really unique thing that you don't often see, which was you know, this kind of accountability in war that very few militaries would do, which is to actually count how many civilians were dying and to put out these press releases about what those numbers were. And I think for many, as this was unfolding, especially in 2015 and 2016, it was, you know, these numbers often went unchallenged. I remember very specifically in early 2016, looking at a front page of a major newspaper and a sort of statement that, you know, 20 or 25,000 ISIS fighters had been killed without really any attribution of that fact or, uh, you know, questions about it. And yet, if you actually look at this, these numbers and you look at the numbers of civilian deaths that were occurring and the numbers of airstrikes that were occurring, you were looking at airstrikes that were resulting in an extremely low civilian death rate. And it would really defy uh, standards of the past and really usher in not just the most precise air war in history, but something that is just extremely curious, given that these airstrikes were taking place in densely populated neighborhoods. Um, but if you look at some of these videos, you can see yourself just how precise um, we can conduct airstrikes today. And so technology was clearly involved in playing a role. And so I was consuming a lot of these videos 
looking at what was happening and which it was very hard to do at the time, right? ISIS has taken over territory. We've seen journalists and other foreigners beheaded by them. You know, it's difficult to operate in these places and we're largely consuming, you know, it's largely ISIS propaganda that is making its way online from ISIS territory or it's videos like these uh, from the milita military that we were seeing. This is a very, you know, I've talked to and met with people within the military who've said that, look, you know, we could take out a very specific part of a house, like a single room and not damage others. We now have missiles that can target a single individual in a car and leave the rest of it untouched, uh, which is really just a new era of warfare. But this is Mosul. And um, specifically, this is an area known as Habat. It's the woods. And, you know, I've met, you know, in my time there, I met a man named Bassem, who actually, Bassem Razo had actually lived in the United States for a number of years and, you know, lived in Mosul with his family. They had, you know, two houses that were connected with one another, he and his brother and his brother's family. Um, so he lived in this area with his wife, Mayada, his brother, Mohanad, his daughter, Tukka, and his nephew, Najib. And they were just very, you know, when ISIS took over, this was a family that really had to work hard to protect themselves and the, their homes became a refuge for them. And Najib, his nephew, you know, would often, they, you know, for women, it was hard to be out and about in Mosul. So really they stayed at home. They had barbecues. Um, they had a great time together. They were trying as much as they could to kind of get by. But one day Najib, who was, you know, had a kind of westernized buzz cut, according to ISIS, was kind of caught when he was out at a market buying dairy cream for breakfast and chastised for having like a Western logo on his shirt and this Western style haircut. And he was given lashes and, you know, Najib became incredibly depressed. The family hunkered down at home and tried to get by as best they could. Now, what I didn't tell you earlier is that this video that I showed you earlier um, was also the homes of Mohanid, of Basim Razo and his family members. And, and so, you know, it was really tough because Basim woke up in the middle of the night and rather than seeing, you know, the roof over his head, he saw the stars above Mosul. And he called out for his wife who didn't answer and, you know, he would later learn in the hospital that his wife, Mayada, his daughter, Duka, his brother, Mohanad, and his nephew, Najib, had all been killed. And that same day, in just a few hours, calling their homes a car bombing factory. And so when I met Bassem and I started to learn his story, you know, he was one of many survivors I had met who had these tales of civilian casualties who'd been dubbed something else entirely, right? In this case, these were two family homes that were called in a YouTube video, a car bombing factory, but he was one of many. And I wanted to understand, well, how often does this occur? You know, how precise are those numbers that are being shared actually? What does precision mean when your technology can do wonders, but your intelligence may not be correct? So I set out to do a ground sample in Iraq. And, you know, I went to the sites of different airstrikes in as many places as I could. Um, and in the end of the ground sample, I was able to visit to the, the sites of 103 in three cluster areas, um, 
Shora, which is a sort of like medium-sized municipality, Kayara, an urban center, but not as large as you know, Mosul by any means, but these were three areas around Mosul that I was able to sample, meaning that I went door to door to visit, you know, any sort of bomb structure and, you know, around the neighborhood, including if there had been airstrikes on the road, et cetera, to plot how many airstrikes occurred and how many of those resulted in the deaths of civilians. And, you know, there was a lot more to it than mere interviews. You know, obviously I would spend time investigating, um, you know, digging through the rubble, looking at what was happening on the ground, you know, uh, flying drones in some cases. So I just want to show you, this is a young girl, Rawa, who lost, you know, all of her family. She was the lone survivor of an airstrike that killed her parents and her siblings. And, um, you know, she had to move in with extended family. This is a water sanitation plant area. And these are some of the injuries that people sustained. So I would document their injuries. I would get their information, um, you know, the different kinds of um, IDs that they might have, any records they have of what happened. I would try to analyze any fragments of weapons and munitions. And my co-author and I, we would take these two, you know, different weapons experts to try to identify them. I you know, dug through rubble to look for any evidence of ISIS presence. Um, you know, I also, you know, worked hard to, when possible, sort of document these from the air, because sometimes it's easier to notice or see some of these, like pictures on the ground can show you so much. But when I would turn in these coordinates and what I found happened to the U.S. military, sometimes it's helpful to render these more visually from the air because they're a little bit more identifiable to people, even if you give them a coordinate. Um, just to kind of show the kind of scale of damage. You know, I also plotted where ISIS did function, you know, in an effort to try to understand, like, did this take place near, did this airstrike or the civilian casualty incident take place near a legitimate target? You know, were they perhaps trying to um, hit that target? And it was a very extensive ground sample that involved, you know, certainly a lot of documentation, looking at before and after satellite imagery to verify the dates and bomb blast areas and to really understand what had happened very specifically. Um, but it also meant that I was like archiving and saving a lot of these videos that the coalition put out, you know, really looking for any changes that were happening on the coalition's YouTube pages. There was a day in which they deleted all of these airstrike videos that they had previously been uploading uh, to YouTube after shortly after I questioned them about them. Um, and then just really starting to collect data and document this and develop a methodology for doing that cluster based sample. And in the end, um, you know, I also was able to, in the beginning for this first story, I was able to, you know, request records in the case of what happened in Qasem Razo's incident, using a kind of creative argument of, for expedited processing. And, you know, I would take these coordinates, I would take the satellite imagery, I would bring them to the military, and I would ask if they conducted a strike on that date, because sometimes it's the Iraqi Air Force that is striking particular places, and just go back and forth with them over, you know, they would deny sometimes that they conducted something. So, for example, that water sanitation facility or this particular bridge. And, you know, I'd kind of follow up based on some of the YouTube videos that I'd saved and was able to uncover that they weren't logging all of their coordinates, which is why they were sometimes saying, like, we didn't conduct anything in this area at that time. Sometimes they would conduct five airstrikes in under an hour. And in the end, um, you know, we concluded, uh, the sociologist I worked with and I, we concluded that, 
you know, according to the coalition's data, but based on this database of all of those press releases, I felt that one in 157 airstrikes in Iraq was resulting in a civilian death, but on the ground, one in five was, which was a rate that was, you know, 31 times higher than what the coalition was claiming. And that's, that's really quite stunning. Um, causes, though, you know, why are so many deaths happening are a little bit harder to explain. The coalition often would cite, if they did cite a cause, they would often explain, you know, close proximity, what people might think of as collateral damage, so-called collateral damage, um, or secondary explosions, when they might target, for example, a major weapons factory, and there would be subsequent explosions um, after that. But it appeared to us that poor or outdated intelligence was involved in about half of these civilian casualty incidents. And what I mean by that is, is that perhaps they were targeting an ISIS structure. I'm sorry, perhaps they were targeting, uh, you know, an ISIS individual who had left an area that could be outdated intelligence. Or, for example, in the case of Boston, where they had conflated a target um, or believed it to be something else, you know, often because of something as known as confirmation bias. But it was very difficult for me to get answers as to what they thought something was, right? Like, I could say I found X, Y, Z on the ground, but it really was harder, I think, to distill what intelligence they had, because I would be told, this is classified information. All we can tell you is that we were targeting a car bombing factory, or we were targeting an ISIS headquarters. Now, those incomplete logs that I mentioned really matter because when somebody submits a civilian casualty incident uh, or an allegation to the coalition, you know, they would often be told, oh, we didn't find anything that took place on this date in this location. But if you're searching incomplete logs, you're far more likely to result in not finding the corresponding airstrike because you're not logging all of those coordinates. And these maybe fair allegations wouldn't get investigated. And it was an extreme problem at the time. We also found a broken payment system, you know, every year Congress had authorized millions of dollars for payments and really hadn't paid out a single Iraqi or Syrian civilian until they made their first payment offer to actually Bassem Razo. And he rejected it because he found it, um, you know, an insult. They offered him $15,000 for those deaths and his own injuries that he'd probably spent far more money um, treating and these homes that they'd spent lives building, you know, on farmland um, of his father. You're listening to a presentation by Osmat Khan, investigative journalist on a number of civilian deaths in Iraq from U.S. airstrikes, either from planes or from drones. I was able to get a document about why they did target the Raza homes. And I made, the argument I made was that he, there was potential threat to his life and that this was you know, that people might conflate him with being ISIS because of that video that was uploaded and the fact that, you know, this was so precisely targeted and dubbed ISIS and that, you know, rogue militias might target him for that reason. And so, you know, instead of it taking four or seven years to get the sort of assessment that was conducted into the airstrike on his homes, I got it in about four months. And it really had stunning details of confirmation bias, of confusing this with another potential target, of saying that they saw no domestic activity, even though they filmed for like an hour and 45 minutes during some of the hottest days of summer. Somebody, you know, who'd spent a lot of time investigating this, I was blown away by some of the details in here. I really wanted to know, like, what does it look like? You know, I get these press releases every month 
what do these others look like when, you know, we apparently conduct, I think, you know, what was constantly talked about as one of the most precise air wars in history. What does that actually look like in terms of this accountability mechanism that the United States has been boasting about? These numbers that we put out, what is the process they go through? If that's what they went through with Boston Razo, it turns out they may have used the wrong coordinate and confused it with the house next door. They filmed for an hour and 45 minutes. And, you know, certainly like at various points, they say there was no overtly nefarious activity or, you know, nothing significant to observe. And yet they still carried this out, right? What is the case in all of these other thousands now of assessments that they've conducted? So following the publication of the story that I that I first wrote with, with Anand Gopal called The Uncounted, I sort of set out to try to get those other records. And it was a process of years. Uh, I had help from the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press, and we filed a lawsuit against the Department of Defense and US Central Command. I think I now have two lawsuits against them um, for more than you know 2,800 plus of these records, these assessments, investigations, some of them are just emails in which they go through a process to either reject or accept the civilian casualty allegation as credible or non-credible. And, you know, it took years to start getting these records, but I had built a database based on them and I started to ingest them. Over time, I started to analyze them and try to visit as many of them as I could on the ground to do a sort of cross comparison. And so, you know, in this database, uh, you know, I put in things I was seeing in there, not just in terms of causes, um, but other kinds of factors involved um, in terms of, you know, was there a secondary explosion? What kind of pre-strike intelligence did they do? Did they see civilians in their midst? You know, there's a process that they go through that is talked about quite a bit about pattern of life analysis, about, you know, looking for the presence of civilians. And in case after case, I was constantly seeing, I think the factor that was most observed in most of them was that, you know, they determined that there was no civilian presence in the area. And in fact, you know, in many cases, there would be dozens of people gathered inside a home or in homes in that area. They just weren't leaving because of the ongoing fighting. And the sort of no civilian presence detected kind of gave them the ability to declare things proportional, right? If you do seconds of a collateral scan, you're not going to see civilians. Um, I think one document that just really blew me away was, you know, it described this chemical weapons factory in Mosul and this kind of incredible intelligence they had to target the structure. And in the document I have, they label incredibly precisely, you know, where this took place. They identify these different parts of this chemical weapons production facility, and they present that target for review. Right, you know, most airstrikes take place in a matter of minutes or hours. They're known as, uh, you know, these these dynamic airstrikes, and a, a rarer majority, a rarer percentage of these are deliberate airstrikes. They go through a more lengthy review process. They're not as urgent um, or critical in real time to have to complete, so they can go through a lengthier process. And I was just also stunned by how even those that went through the lengthier processes could have could be riddled with incredible flaws. And I'll just give you an example. So I'm looking at this chemical weapons factory that they have identified in this area and they describe how everyone in this pre-strike review meeting authorizes it and says that this strike is good to go. 
And one person in this room who it's unclear to me as to why they were there, they, they work for USAID, a development agency, but they were in this review board meeting and they essentially said that they disagreed with the analysis. They thought that some children who'd been observed in the area of playing lived in the compound or in the area that they were targeting and that conducting that airstrike could likely result in the deaths of those children. They saw 10 children in footage. It appears that, you know, based on statements she later made that were documented in this, in this assessment, that that was ignored. The airstrike was carried out. And a few days later, photos of dead children surfaced online. And, you know, it was, I think, in the very first batch of documents I got in this lawsuit. And I looked at it and I was just blown away that the one person in that room or the one person involved in this decision to authorize the strike who wasn't trained in intelligence was the only person who accurately interpreted the intelligence at hand. What does it tell you about confirmation bias? And who was that family? Where are they? Who were those children? Who were they related to? Were they related to ISIS members? That document had um, imagery inside it, but it was redacted, but I was able to, because of the exact compound that they depicted, I was able to geolocate it to a neighborhood in Mosul called Yabisat in Western Mosul. And it didn't take long to find the family. Everyone knew who I was talking about. And there was a brother who was still living. He lived down the street from his brother who lived there with his family and 21 member, 22 members of their family, I think were killed that night. And he described picking up their pieces. I was able to find videos online of the aftermath of that bombing and identify the children in this family and really report out, you know, what had happened. And it was so important to me from that, you know, from taking these documents and from, and finding where they took place on the ground. And with time, I was able to do that more systematically and visit the sites, at least in Iraq and Syria, I think it was more than, in total, I visited the sites of more than 100 civilian casualty incidents in Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan. And in many of them, I was able to trace the details, find the victims, and sort of document what happened. But more than that, I was able to sort of, you know, I feel like it's the most important journalism I've ever done, but I was able to take the documents that detail these targeting decisions that the military had and bring them to some of the people who were on the receiving end of that, who were plagued by these questions of why were we hit? Why were we targeted? And ask them about some of the details of them and tell them about some of what was in them and ask them for their own responses. And, you know, there's one, I don't want to spoil it now and, and tell you too many details about it, but if you have a chance to listen to an episode of the New York Times podcast, The Daily, I think it was from like January 18th or 19th, you can actually listen to one of these interviews in which, you know, I deconstruct what happens in a document and take you to meet a woman who knows some of the people in it. And I don't want to spoil it, but I think it's just, you know, it's a question of not just what we owe those we harm, but what it means that we have this system of accountability that we talk about, certainly, you know, we're talking about right now in the face of Russia's egregious war crimes in Ukraine, right? And, and what the United States is doing is very different, but we have a system of accountability that frankly, 
when I went through the 1300 records I obtained and others went through them as well, we did not find one instance, a single instance of a finding of wrongdoing or disciplinary action. Not a single one. There was one possible rule of engagement violation, but it appears to have gone nowhere. So what does it mean when you have a system that military officials I spoke to told me was intended, in fact, actually functioned not as a system of accountability, but as a system to sort of prevent findings of wrongdoing, in many ways to prevent that kind of accountability that others might seek, to ward off accusations of war crimes. And, you know, there are very specific reasons for that. But when you, when your intelligence is so systematically off, right, or it's certainly not what you're claiming in terms of the level of precision and detail and care, how much do these decisions of declaring things proportional, right, that the expected military advantage is proportional to what might be gained, how accurate of a proportionality decision do you actually have? And these were some of the questions that I wrestled with, and they were published in several pieces in the New York Times, um, one in the newspaper, uh, one in the magazine, um, each of which was like 10,000 words, so they're pretty lengthy. And then, you know, certain follow-up articles and series with others um, that sort of look at what this means when we've conducted an air war that looks so different, not just on the ground, but when you analyze the sort of intelligence and in these files, the system of accountability, does it really function as one or does it actually function as a system of, a, of impunity? And is this a broken system or was a system designed to function this way? And these are the sorts of questions that I think are worthy of public debate. I think that, you know, Americans need to be informed about the wars taken in their names, but we've been woefully uninformed for quite some time, in part because of the radical shift that's taken place, which is that certainly since 2015 onward, in most of the major wars that America has been embroiled in, we have fought primarily by air. You know, the the numbers of troops on the ground that we lost in Iraq and Afghanistan really made it unpalatable to continue with that pace, to continue deploying more ground troops to fight. Instead, we were sort of assisting and training partner forces, or we were carrying out airstrikes from the air to assist partner forces. And what that means is that when Americans, you know, are not dying in such high numbers in our wars, so, for example, in Operation Inherent Resolve, this air war in Iraq and Syria, more Americans died from suicide than from hostile death. So when you don't have as many Americans dying, which do not get me wrong, it's a very good thing that fewer American service members are losing lives. But when you don't have that, what you often also don't have is the kind of accountability that is driven by those losses. And I don't just mean journalists being on the ground and embedding and being there. But I mean, the kind of accountability that comes from public demands about wars, um, about congressional attention, about a focus on ending them or thinking through the costs of conflict, because those are often restraining factors. They're political costs to wars that are then thus diminished significantly. It doesn't mean that there are no longer any costs. But I think for most Americans, you know, what has been a driving force in being informed about wars 
and for accountability or even just an impetus to end them has often been feeling those kinds of losses and feeling those costs. And when you take that out of the picture, what are you left with? And there are arguments by many who've, are, who've said that, you know, you're left with wars that are easy to, easier to perpetuate, you know, easier to green light, but also easier to forget and to continue without stopping or trying to really limit them. And you're essentially functioning in a, you know, democratic society that's supposed to be having an informed debate about wars and doesn't really get to see how we've now shifted much of the human costs of war, our wars, to foreign populations. And so it's something that, you know, I'm writing about beyond just the civilian casualty files in a book I'm working on. And I hope, I hope this work will, will leave you with questions of not just, you know, I, many people want to ask about war crimes and what it means that America conducts war in this fashion, but also about what it means for me, this is also just really about what it means to be in a democratic society that has, should be having informed debates about war. And how do you get them when the information can be so questionable? That was Osmet Khan, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, investigative reporter on the disaster that is our airstrike programs in the Middle East. And if you want to know more about the upcoming protest at Holloman Air Force Base, go to shutdowndronewarfare.org. Shut down dronewarfare.org. If you want to see more of Osmet Khan, you can go to her website, azmatzahra.com. And if you didn't get that, just search Osmet Khan, A-Z-M-A-T-K-H-A-N, Osmet Khan, and go to her website. The pictures are wonderful and highlight the children that live in the region that she studies. The children that are in daily danger from us, from our United States military. You can also follow the Feinberg series by going to blogs.umass.edu slash Feinberg, F-E-I-N. B-E-R-G. You can also go to umass.edu and search Feinberg from there. That's easier. And if you want to follow along with what is going on in Tennessee, I mentioned earlier the Tennessee Holler. That's T-N Holler, H-O-L-L-E-R. So T-N-H-O-L-L-E-R dot com. And they're probably the site that's going to give you kind of the quickest and most up-to-date and realistic view of what is actually going on in Tennessee. So that is Tennessee Holler, T-N-H-O-L-L-E-R.com. Well, there you have our two-pronged show. But, in fact, we're going to make it a three-pronged as we are going to end with a song from friend of the show, Joseph Filippo and the R.J. Phillips Band, which highlights another significant and underreported issue, and that is the number of missing and murdered indigenous women. I read in the Smithsonian Magazine a, a 2019 article by Alicia Alt, uh, and let me just read what, uh, a little bit of what she says. 
In 2016, 5,712 American Indian and Alaska Native women and girls were reported missing, which is likely just the tip of the iceberg since only 116 were officially recorded in the U.S. Department of Justice Missing Persons Database. According to a 2018 study by the Urban Indian Health Institute, a division of Seattle Indian Health Board, the notion that there is so much silence around the deaths and disappearances of so many Native women is excruciating to Jamie Black, the Winnipeg, Manitoba-based artist and a member of the Metis tribe. She created the Red Dress Project as an expression of her grief and her feeling of connectedness to the fellow indigenous women in which she hangs red dresses in March around the National Museum of American Indian in Washington, D.C. So, as Joseph is prone to do, he finds an underreported or underknown issue and he turns it into a song. And that is how we will finish the show. So, I hope that we have given you enough to think about today. From the white supremacy in Tennessee to the imperial disaster of our drones and airstrikes to the ignored plight of Native women. See how they all fit together? Here is the R.J. Phillips Band and the song, their new song, Red Dress. Hang another red dress She went to the store The minutes became hours Her folks stared at the door Since that day two years have passed And the sweet grass burns Morning prayers are offered That she will return Felix and his sister Val Live by Williams Lake at night he lays awake She said, I'll see you later As she left for town Like so many native girls She's never been found Hanging on the red dress from the trees For the missing and the casualties Until this ceases to be Hang another red dress from the trees Larissa Lone Hill vanished On the Pine Ridge Rest Another missing person The tribal police says Her name was added to the list Of the Lakota Sioux Whereabouts remain unknown Lost without a clue 
dress from the trees For the missing and the casualties Until this ceases to be Hang another red dress Hang another red dress from the trees Another red dress.